Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This week's Filmmakers Podcast is brought to you by Massive, the fastest way to send and receive massive film and video files. Send uncompressed dailies, locked pictures, DCPs, and more with Massive. Spelt M-A-S-V. Keep listening to hear how you can receive 100 gigabytes for free towards your next transfer. Massive. The Podfix Network. And welcome to episode 235 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about films, television, and more. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever listened to this show? (laughs) Oh my gosh, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to... Fuck it up. In our very, oh, to say that? very humble <laughs> opinion. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Today is a delight for us to have on the fantastic producer, Ado Yoshizaki Kazuto. Uh, and we're talking about how we go from feature film to TV producing. Now, Ado, if you don't know, was on our Make Your Film event about two years ago. He joined us, joined myself and Don, for the live event. I can't remember if we put it up or not. If we didn't, then you don't know about his backstory. So, real quick... I'm I'm just going to give you a rundown of what he has produced, which includes Guantanamero, The Last Passenger, which starred Dougray Scott, and he produced City of Tiny Lights, which starred Oscar nominee Riz Ahmed. On TV recently, he produced The Pale Horse and The Fantastic Deceit. Yes, which is the amazing true crime drama adaptation of the investigation into the murder of Rachel Nichol that has just come out on Channel 4, starring the amazing Neem Algar, Harry Treadaway, Nathaniel Martello-White, and the incredible Eddie Marsan. With Addo on the show, we talk all about uh, how he did go from feature film to TV producing, what it's like making a TV show in a pandemic, and how deceit Came about. We also talk about Addo's process, starting a new TV project as a producer, what it's like making a true crime drama, why you need to make good decisions as a producer. And he talks about searching for a director and cast on TV, what he looks for, why would you get the job, and also why show running doesn't really exist in the UK. And some really important stuff, how to navigate tough times when the chips are down and how to get back on track, and why you shouldn't let it take over your life. Obviously we dive deep into deceit as well but we also talk at the end about hbo and the fact that he is producing a brand new show for them look out for that that's all to come on this week's filmmakers podcast but before we get there dom myself and you 
have some news, don't we? Yes, the news is here. Me and Charles are expecting. <laughs> you can't even say it without laughing. Um, that is not correct. No, that's not the news. No, that's not news. Everyone knows that. Um, no, what is the news, Dom? This is exciting. Should I do a drum roll? All right, you do it. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> we have uh, both of our films premiering at the fantastic Fright Fest, which is one of the best horror festivals in the whole world. Yes. I've got followers, which I produced uh, with Parkhouse Pictures. That is playing on the second night of Fright Fest. Fright Fest starts on the uh, 26th of August in London. And I'm actually going there on the first night for the first night party because The Kindred, uh, which was directed by Jamie Patterson, who was on the podcast a couple of, maybe about a month or so ago. Classic episode. It's a great episode. Very funny. He's a brilliant guy. His film, The Kindred, is, I think, the final film that night. So I'm going to that because my producers of Followers produced that as well. So, And we're on the second night, which is Friday the 27th at 8.20 and I think 9pm as well. And then, Dom, you are the following night. Yes, so on the following night, primetime slot, Saturday at 9pm, the world premiere of When the Screaming Starts, which is the debut feature film of Connor Buru. And there's a nice little story here because Connor originally came on and came to our Make Your Film events, came on a film course that we ran. He's been listening to the podcast for a long time and it's one of those things where it started helping out with advice uh, and then suddenly I found myself as a producer and over the last couple of months I've been battling through with uh, post deadlines and organising the post production and the film is shaping up incredibly well and we brought some really amazing people on so you should get yourself down to that premiere I can't wait Saturday night 28th grab it of August so we'll be there for the first three nights well I certainly will be anyway so if you're down there come and say hello could just do it don't be shy if you're not used to that sort of thing. Honestly, I won't bite. Well, I might. It depends. He if does. He does bite. I need a bite. <laughs> so anyway, that's Fright Fest. That's myself and Tom. We have our films down there that we have produced. It's kind of cool. Like Addo, yeah. except he's a lot better than we are. But still, that's <laughs> that's irrelevant. How exciting, Tom. What else have you been up to? Uh, mostly that. <laughs> We had a, a link, but no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a very full time, like, to be honest. No, I've got, I've got two or three other other things that are in development and just about to sort of go into production later in the year as a producer and as a director. So I'm literally slammed on this for the next couple of weeks, and then I'm full fright fest mode, and then the rest of the year is is pretty cram packed uh, as well, moving things forward. Cram packed like vegan sardines in a can. Uh, Exactly. Exactly. I obviously, as everyone knows, who listens to this podcast regularly. We are in. Yeah, we all know, Giles. We're on deep prep now. <laughs> for no, not people don't know this. We're deep in prep now for mine and Dom's baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, for Three Day Millionaire, uh, which we're shooting in Grimsby in September. So deep, proper deep into crewing up, casting up. It's kind of kind of full on getting locations, sorting out permits. So I'm heading up to Grimsby pretty much when this comes out. So I'll be up there, hopefully sunning myself on the beach. <laughs> I won't be. There's no beach. It's just rocks. But you get the idea. And lots of ships passing by, so it wouldn't be too nice. But... Yeah. That is happening at the moment. It's all full on, but very exciting. Um, it's lovely to squeeze in a bit of Fright Fest in between. I love Fright Fest. It's great. Fantastic festival. It's, no, it's Fright Fest, Dom. Not fantastic. No. <laughs> oh, so shall uh. we get to it before we make more fools of ourselves? 
Yes. By the way, who is having the baby? Is it you or me? I think it's you. I'd probably take that. This is this week's episode <laughs> with the fantastic Ado Yoshizaki Kasuto, brilliant producer. Can we call, him, can we call the baby Pod? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of yeah, Pod. That's a good name for a baby. A nice name, yeah. yeah. To be honest, though, this is already our baby. So, yes, we've given birth already to this. So let's get to today's episode with Ado Yoshizaki Kasuto, the fantastic producer of The Brilliant Deceit. It is out now. Go watch it. Enjoy. Hey. Hello. Ado, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it, man. Thank you. No, it's it's a pleasure. And uh, how are you guys? Are you well? Very good. Yeah. 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 Just deep in the middle of post and prep for another one. So it's all a little bit mental. And during a pandemic as well. I mean, that's just uh, another layer, yeah, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. And same to you, man. You know, getting... Uh, to see it off the ground in the pandemic or you know certainly now that it's coming out is incredible i think mm. so it's huge did you shoot during the pandemic yeah. as well yeah 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 we did i mean it was it started last june when we were still in the first lockdown and the kids weren't in school mm. and i think it was about um three or four months before we were actually in production and there was a little period where the cases were coronavirus cases were quite low during the summer yeah. mm-hmm. then there was eat out to help out and then very steadily through the last five or six weeks of our prep the numbers started to go in a pretty worrying direction mm-hmm. and then when we started the shoot we were at about five thousand cases a day and then it started to just go nuts after that and i think every single day until december when we finished was was a bit of a trial i mean it was hard work so skipping backwards how did uh, how did deceit all come about how did you get involved in the project how did all things get kicking off the way it came about was I think it was last uh, February, March, I went to meet Dave Nath from Story Films, who's a BAFTA winning documentary filmmaker himself and just a wonderful guy, really serious. He has done uh, some amazing shows, all true crime or, Mm -hmm. or sort of true stories. And he and I talked about this one that he wanted to get off the ground in, I think, May. Then the pandemic struck and... While I was kind of wondering what to, what was going to happen, and you'd sort of hear whispers of things in May, sort of starting to try and see what they could do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he came back to me and said, uh, Channel 4 were, were interested in exploring whether or not the film could go ahead and mm-hmm. how much it might cost to add on top to, to tackle the corona side. So we, d- we did that. And then basically through July, they suddenly said, I think it was kind of like a green light. Neve was already attached. We searched for a direction, got Neil McCormick on board. And mm-hmm. as soon as we did that, it started to, to, to become more and more real through August. And September was really prep. And October is when we started. And 52 days later, we'd finished shooting. But it was a marathon. That sounds like a really quick turnaround. I mean, I'm, yeah. I hear people in TV shows and trying to get something, you know, written and ready and out there. And it's takes them years and years and years it seems to me that was quite quick no it's i'm very lucky i don't get to on on these tv series i don't really get involved in development and so they've been in development on this probably for about four years i think Ah, Mm -hmm. amelia dave i mean the you know the amount of research and also getting the uh consent of victims families Mm -hmm. um colin stagg all the people involved in a true 
life scenario they've managed to they spent years doing that so i've really been lucky to come in at the end where they said okay how how do we actually go about making this and that's that's the point i come in i mean that must have been quite a, a tricky situation to get the permission uh because it's it's a you know it's a it's quite a controversial take on it and i mean i can't imagine colin stagg being particularly delighted at the idea oh he's all right actually Is he? Uh, Is he really? yeah okay. he's he's so used to it i mean the right. number of books and yeah. and you know all sorts of things that are documentaries have come out about him he's quite blasé about it because he's spent mm. probably more than half his life now in the public eye yeah in that sense and um i think the guys from story films are extraordinary in the sense that how they approach it they they really are um people you can trust and they're very honest um and and they do things in the right way and they really want to so i think that's helped um i think nate rachel's family rachel nickel's family was a bit tougher for mm. many understandable reasons and the victims of samantha samantha bissett and jasmine bissett their families that's um yeah it's a lot of i mean it's it's fractured fractured sort of stories and families isn't it so it's yeah quite tricky. it's difficult but then when you've got a big company it's not like you're making an independent film where it could be done in a who knows you know and they can get worried about it but here it's you know it's big companies behind it and people they trust and suddenly that changes everything doesn't it I yeah suppose. i i think it's right i mean if i was doing this as an indie film you don't have anywhere near that kind of oversight you have some lawyers maybe but here we had the entire channel's legal department and compliance and objective media group mm -hmm. you know all the way through story films as well i mean it's just there's a lot of people involved and what that led to is every single word in the script every inflection in the in the rushes having to be checked and we had to change wow. quite a lot because of compliance i've, I've never mm. done anything that's even vaguely a uh, non-fiction mm -hmm. so to be put in the middle of something that's as contentious as this was quite a learning curve and i think it, it really it really highlights the not just the the horror of the victim and the victim's family but the the harrowing uh lengths that undercover agents actually have to go to and not agents i'm thinking fbi terms mm. <laughs> american tv but i mean i mean the, the lengths that they have to go to and i mean there's a there's an amazing moment in one of the first episodes where where neem's kind of uh going through the the severe anxiety of you know, mm. building herself up to talking to a serial killer and then has to sort of flip into acting. And it's, it's an amazing sort of transformation yeah. moment. And, and you, you know, you really go into the, the fear of what it's like to actually have to immerse yourself into this kind of underworld. And I think the show really captures that well with the sort of the cinematography and the, the dark grungy tone. Oh God, yeah. yeah, it's gorgeous. And the colours and everything, mm. it's sort of, a, it, it sets off in, the, in that nightclub set in 92 for everyone who doesn't know. And it, it has that nightclub feel, which takes me back to sort of my days. And, <laughs> yeah. and the colours then carried on. And I really love that grungy, like Dom said, the oranges, the yellows. And it keeps that going throughout. Was that something again yeah. that you talked about with your director? And yeah, I mean Neil. Neil is um, so yeah. Neil had made a couple of things that are very cinematic looking, and I think with Channel Four, I remember being on a call with the uh, commissioner, and she just said, "Look, it's Channel Four. We want to be different. We don't want this to look like an ITV sort of true crime drama." Even though mm -hmm. I actually quite liked um, Des, uh, Des recently. Great, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, wasn't it? yeah. Yeah, David um, Tennant starring. Yeah, but I, I knew what she meant. I, I knew that it was meant to be more vibrant more dynamic more colorful more cinematic and um we sort of went down that route straight away i think and and i like that the episode sort of change it is a little bit horror movie a little bit serial killer stuff and then mm. it kind of morphs into a much more humane story as it goes through and uh, i sort of like the contrast
contrast that, that are going on there. Um, so yeah, it was it was a conscious decision to make it look the way it does. And um, yeah, was it always in the script the the Eddie Marson psychologist kind of angle? Because I mean that's that's one of the other things that that is quite unique about it is is his his kind of performance and you know really going into the mindset of um, you know the, who they're looking at and and the yeah, way to prepare. Yeah, it's all true. I mean, mm. I think, oh, really? I think okay. what what we wanted to do is what what I couldn't get done, and I really wished that I kind of had because I think it would add something to it. But you you've seen each episode starts with a whole bunch of captions, mm. and it's like heavily legal sort of captions. You know, these are yeah. like what you know what you can and can't say. When you talked about undercover officers and the lengths they went to, we had to cut a lot of really amazing stuff that was pushing the boundary even further because there was a kind of conservative fear of not offending people, you know, mm. even though everything that we depicted had happened at some point. And then the other side is Paul Britton is a real character. He's the mm. only person who is aware of the series, but hasn't been involved in giving his consent. Right. And even with that, I think that there was a kind of concern that he might, <laughs> Uh, litigate <laughs> but, I think, but I think that in the end the series is incredibly fair to everybody that's involved and that's one of the things I liked about it it's quite balanced in that sense mm. it's not like a sort of you know let's muckrake and let's just go after mm -hmm. someone let's pre present things as black and white you know it's, it's a lot of complex issues at, at the heart of it but I have to say what I wish I'd added with the captions at the beginning or wish been able to was that every single phone call between Lizzie and Colin is verbatim and every single letter is word for word. So, wow. so basic, and all the police interviews are verbatim as well. Obviously chopped and edited down for length and mm -hmm. moved around, mm -hmm. but those are the exact, and, and same thing happened in Des as well, which I wasn't aware of, that those are, are mostly verbatim as well. And I think it just adds that layer because you mm. could just do a docudrama where you have the people reading the letters, you know, reading out the transcripts and, and then a sort of vague attempt to drama, drama reconstruction. But it's trying to embed all of that within like, uh, a kind of, you know, not glossy, but cinematic looking sort of series that um, I thought was brilliant, you know, because mm. you're sort of wondering, these conversations actually happen? Did they say that? It's like they said it, all of it, word for word. So, um, yeah, wow. I think that adds something. And how did you, you mentioned there about speaking to the friends, family and victims. How did you approach them? What was, did you find best ways to approach them when that first one was saying no and you approached someone else and you, did you try different tactics? How did, how did you go about it? I was involved uh, secondhand on that. I think through um, post-production, there were things that we had to send to um, Rachel's son, for example, clips and scenes. Is this okay? Check everything off. You know, some newspaper uh, or, or sort of archive from the time where we wanted to put real news readings from the time. They're a bit too visceral, a bit too graphic. So we had to kind of change all of that. But luckily, Dave and Pete, Beard and Kira at Story, they really have done this again and again with their drama. Uh, they've just got a documentary out on Channel 4 about sex traffickers that's just come out now. For example, they, they've spent uh, 20 years, 30 years doing this kind of thing. And I think I, I let them handle all of that because they know how to do it. And, um, and I think they've done it yeah, spectacularly well because uh, it's difficult subject matter. Very difficult. So let's jump back and talk about, right, so when you get asked to come and do something like this what's your what's the role what do you first do how do you set up do you get crew in do you start looking at cast what 
for you as a producer, for those out there who don't know, what is the role? What do you actually, what's your first thing? It's a, it's two worlds, isn't it? One is mm. the film world where you do mm. everything from yes. the start and you, you're in charge of absolutely every little bit of it. And, and you know, you ha- your responsibility is entirely on you. And if it happens, you know, you feel it's like your baby, you know, it's, uh, it's such a labor of love. With the TV uh, series, um, so I think, I think I come in at a later point. Um, mm-hmm. So I would get sent things that are either greenlit or ready to go. Um, right. ready, almost greenlit, let's say. And that's sort of how the TV world functions at the minute. It's it's sort of more of a business and it's more um, stable, I would say, in terms of what's, what's, what's doable. So they would have ordinarily uh, a writer, they've written some scripts and um, it's been commissioned or close to being commissioned and there's a production company behind it. The people at these production companies aren't actually producers, they're, they're executive producers. They're very good with scripts and talent and, and getting commissions, which is their bread and butter. I straddle the world between the commissioning side and the production company side and then the production itself. And my job is really to kind of come in and assess well, how much have we got and where are we making this and when? So those are the first questions. And really it's the director crewing up, casting and and designing the show in the sense of like, how, how are we going to approach this in the best way possible? And, and thinking it through and sort of a structure to it. Now that was particularly important during the pandemic because we had a big con- conversation to have at the beginning, which is what is the safest way to do this? And um, the first thing I did is kick all the scenes that you've seen with lots of people down to the end of the schedule. Not because it was it was trying to figure out, well, in August last year, when we were designing it, it was like, well, we have a choice. Half of it will take place in the studio and half of it will be on the road. Mm-hmm. Which is the best way to go around? Do you start on the road when the cases are low mm-hmm. and then go into a studio to hide? Mm-hmm. Or do you start in the studio and then take a chance on the fact that, you know, the cases will be even further down or, or yeah. things will open <laughs> or, up more. Or not. Yeah. <laughs> or not. Yeah. What's the best way to do this? And so you grapple with that and you sort of present it and talk it through with everybody. And we thought in this case, and I think it turned out to be the right case, was that we'll start in the studio because then everyone will get used to seeing people mm. again. Very true. And, yeah. You know, they're, 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 those sort of nerves won't be just, oh my God, and we're moving to another street because we were in prep. When we were on a recce, we went to a street in Kingston where the rule of six had literally just been called in. Right. And people just drove past us, rolled down their windows, screamed at us and started and spitting. What? So which is like, spitting? yeah, starting spitting at the crew the because worst. that's the worst thing you can possibly do with coronavirus. I mean, yeah. it's just, yeah, it was yeah, disgusting. Yeah. I mean, it's ironic. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's it's ironic. It was just showed how angry people were that they were being forced to stay indoors and didn't know yeah. what they were doing with their work. And here were some people, you know, mm. gladding about in high-vis jackets all getting ready to make something. I, it just yeah. felt surreal. So, yeah. you know, those big scenes like on a council estate and things like that, we just thought, there's no way we can do that at the beginning, mm. you know? So we'll take a chance and see, and I'll just put them towards the end. And by then we'll be a rolling machine. We'll be a, a good machine. We'll yes. know what we're doing mm. and we'll be able to handle things better. So, yeah. But that's that's kind of it. Yeah, I think that was a great way to do it, actually. I think if you'd gone outside first, there's too many variant, variants, literally, but there's too many things <laughs> happening around you. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Uh, but it makes it really difficult. Whereas inside first, you all know what you're doing. You know where your stations are. Everything's safe. You get yeah. used to the way of working, of everyone how to work. And then when you're outside, well, it 
people know how people yeah. work. I, I think that was a good way to do it. It felt sensible. The other reason was because if we'd had a shutdown, although we had the insurance just come in, but during prep, we didn't know if there would be. And it just sounded like it would bring the entire production down. Um, there, you know, there's the budget was, was good, but not spectacularly amazingly huge so it's mm. not like we cope with lots of different kinds of problems um so the thing is if something had happened in the first week and we'd been out on location i think we would have all just thrown our hands up in the air you know yeah. whereas in a studio you could sort of control who comes in and out and that but that was a better way of kind of fortressing mm. ourselves but yeah. that yeah generally speaking this is what i'm doing now as well is is um yeah, cast lists, director lists, uh, scripts coming on. You know, that's the sort of start of it. And you can sort of feel that it's it's sort of calm now, but at a certain point, it's going to the intensity will ramp up and up and up, and that's that's probably what's going to happen again. I wouldn't say enjoyable, but it's quite energizing in a mm. way. When you, and the more people that come on, the better as well, because it starts off very lonely and it ends very lonely. At yeah. the beginning, it's just a couple of people, and then and then there's suddenly the whole production and everyone's around, and then there's post and there's like a or more select group yeah. and then suddenly it's just you at the end watching the online fixing yeah. tiny little things and that's it it's gone it's a sort of dilution of pressure in, in a way uh, you know yeah. as there's more people that, that can kind of solve problems with you I guess as you that's and true then, and then, actually yeah and then <laughs> you know true. at the start it's like all on you to you know go through the development or to get the funding sometimes if you're in film and then in post it's like you know at the moment I'm you know battling out with, with another guy on a, a deadline for uh, a film that's coming out very soon and it's just suddenly you're, you're condensed down to a very small number of management uh, and there's it's all kind of resting on your shoulders and then it kind of yeah. then it's release day and or it's out on the TV and it's all mm. back to happy smiles and premieres and then you, you kind of forget it all again <laughs> well sort of happy smiles fake yeah, happy semi -happy smiles, smiles isn't it yeah. <laughs> grimaces with, with always pain behind the eyes oh I know I know I, I, I actually don't like pre-release anymore I have to say I know no. that the show the show's coming out on Friday uh, mm. the 13th now but I just I sort of the, the, the more I do, the less I'm, I'm enjoying this particular period. I like it after it's come out and then... Mm. But um, yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it? It's just, um, mm. yeah, how is it going to be? You sort of don't care and sort of do care at the same time. Like you yeah. sort of kn know what you've been through and you know yeah. what it is. At yeah. the same time, you're sort of like, well, you know, I don't know. It's just weird. Well, I see it as it's out of your hands now. Uh, it's someone else's baby to love and, and nourish and take it on board now. And they can champion in it. That's how I feel. And I hope that happens, you know, with all your films. You know, you, you just kind of want other champions to run with it and go, that film's amazing and get tattoos of it or that TV oh, series. Oh, that would be so amazing. nice. <laughs> yeah, <wouldn't> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're right, Charles. I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, you honestly, you from what me and Dom have seen, we've, we were. Uh, lucky enough to watch the first two episodes yes. and it yeah. is brilliant and it really will I think smash through the barrier especially right now and it's a really yeah. weird time like there seems to be nothing new with the new dramas Des was out recently like yeah. we mentioned there was a few others that were big 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 and now suddenly we're all going where's where's the new one so I think yeah. it's perfect timing yeah, yeah. and especially for something yeah. that's like not, not, an, accident. Oh, not an accident yeah, yeah. that's why he's doing his Just job luck. <laughs> but, but then I think I think there has been a little bit of a dip in, in content, like that. You know, there's been a lot of stuff that's sort of been put out on certain channels mm. or, or networks, that, and then there's these kind of gems that are coming along. And you know, I, I really crave those kind of high quality original oh, uh, yeah. bits of content, and this is certainly that. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I tell you what, I think that there's um, yeah, there's an appetite for this kind of um, true crime thing, and yeah. I, hope, I just hope we've done done it proud. I have to say, every single there are two things going through my mind the whole time. One is about the victims thinking 
talking about them because you know everyone's like oh yeah you're playing Rachel or whatever you know to an actress and you'd be like she's <laughs> yeah. just you know and everyone came traumatized who'd, who'd read about the case you know mm. who, who'd really understood that case and the Samantha Bissett case came out really traumatized you know from just what they'd read because it's just so awful but mm-hmm. the other side of it was was just like you know I remember talking to people saying I wonder if anything that's ever made during the pandemic is going to be any good because honestly it's so hard to make anything in this situation mm-hmm. like it's almost like the quality is great if you can get it but just the making of it is just it's just a sheer bloody achievement you I know? know and yet we're interestingly the audiences at home don't care we knew that. We knew that. We said that. He said we were there. I was uh, uh, putting out an actual literal fire on the set one day myself, you know, just as a, <laughs> a kind of metaphor for my life. And then yeah. I was just like, I was putting, stamping out this fire in the dark, obviously, because wow. all the lights are off. It was outside. And I was like, has anyone seen this fire? No. Okay, I'll stamp it out then. Stamped it out. And I just thought no one is going to care. By the time this comes out, mm-hmm. no one will care that it was shot during a pandemic. And that's just something we're going to have to live with. You know? I bet those Kingston spitters were watching it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bet the same, the same people that abused you on the street, I guarantee <laughs> yeah. you, like quite a lot of them will be talking about it with their friends. They will. They will because it was filmed on their street. There They're going to know. <laughs> if only they drove by when the fire was burning, they could have yeah, spat, spat it out. out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Idiot. Oh, oh my God. Well, you've mentioned there about the moment you're cast hunting and director hunting. What is it you look for in, in a drama like this in terms of your cast and your directors? What what tactics, what kind of things, what 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 for you what basis do you go down and you look for it's really different with the films as it is with the tv i mean again to film i'd be much more um probably before we have a director you're already talking about cast or Mm -hmm. you you know you're sort of involved with agents and and just sort of you know i don't know in a tv series like um the two that i've done so i've done pale horse and i've done deceit now and pale horse the casting process happened in the last two weeks we got 21 cast on board in the last two weeks the lead came on rufus came on probably a, a week and a half before shoot shoot wow. started to the extent where the director and I would be joking about how we would have to be the leads because <laughs> it, no, it just wasn't going to happen and so they came on really super late in that and and then Deceit was the opposite so Deceit had this huge problem in front of it is how are you going to make it mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the same time it came with Neve Algo already attached yeah. and there were tapes going around of Sean Daniel Young playing Colin Stagg and I remember Dave um, early on in August said oh Amelia and I really like Sean Daniel Young what do you think and I had a look and it was just amazing and I just thought so we had those two on board quite early on in our prep and I think when Neil came on Neve was already attached so he oh. came on board knowing that she would be the lead and he was he was super happy about it uh, as, of course. As, as he should be I mean <laughs> it's incredible fantastic yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's in, she's just insanely good, and uh, and and you and what about directors? And you mentioned about cast there. But what do you look for in directors as well? What is it? Is it other telly they've done? Is it stuff that would exciting or that fits this particular project? Yeah, it's it's a it's definitely fits this particular project. And um, what kind of profile are you looking for? Um, again, the two that I've done very different from the film direct. Your film film. Uh, I've had directors come to me with a script, and I've gone to a director very early on in TV. TV, you know, most of it's kind of there before the producer and the director do come on. So on Pale Horse, it was, I, I went through a list of 108 directors to find, wow. and then 
Uh, I mean, when I say I, I mean, this is together with Mammoth, the production company, who who would be driving the conversation as in what mm. they're looking for and what they're not. And are you looking at showreels during that time? You're looking at yeah, reels? Yeah, showreels. I mean, agent, you know, you can imagine with 108 directors, that's 108 agents as well. Each agent would come up with a series of suggestions of other people, some of whom are, you know, not right or, or, or you know, unachieved, you know, just unattainable, yeah, that kind great. of thing. The, mm-hmm. the list is sprawling and huge and it's just a case of whittling it down. And when we finally got to Leo Lonsdale I mean I don't think anyone would have thought she she would have ended up directing it because she'd only done a short film and a documentary and uh and was kind of you know almost on the cusp of starting her TV career so it was quite a big mm. leap for her you know obviously she handled it brilliantly but um in in Deceit I think I remember Dave saying because there were other directors in the picture mm-hmm. but I remember we, we were sort of talking it through and then he was saying in this situation now with the pandemic I just think we need to get someone who knows what they're doing, who's really experienced. Because if you add all the pressures of coronavirus on top of an inexperienced director, it might just mm. be too much for them to handle. Mm-hmm. And and we sort of, so I think that skewed it towards someone who's kind of, who, who knows as long as we can create the right conditions around him, who can just focus on doing the job on the set, you yeah. know, with the actors and, and not have to worry about other stuff, but can make the days and everything else. So, so that that's how we sense. ended up. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that list then became shorter. Mm-hmm. I mean, the funny thing is most people were available. It was one of those times when everything's yeah. reset and everybody's available. Everybody's available. So, like now. It's like, it's like <laughs> yeah. if you, it's not. like, in, if all football clubs released all their players straight away, <laughs> yeah, onto the market. And then, yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah. you can suddenly go around cherry picking, like because your 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 one is happening. You're about mm. to go, and everyone's yeah, desperate to work. Everyone's exactly. So I managed to get like people from film who've never done TV before, but um, but really wanted to work. So I got a first AD who's Merchant Ivory's first AD, and just a brilliant, like one of the world's best. He just did The Father and Lady oh. Macbeth. Never oh. done TV before, wow. and so I managed to convince him to come on board. And oh, Danny nice. Ball's production designer, and you oh. know things like that. Things so, like that, yeah, because so ever the time people needed fun. the work. So yeah, for you, it's like yeah. t- sweet shop, wasn't it? Right, it was, it was, it was. Lionel Messi over there, Ronaldo, <laughs> you can go centre back. Messi just left Barcelona. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's get him on the next one. Yeah. That is not the case any longer. I can, no, tell you no, no, I can tell you right now, we're trying to crew up our next one, and it is an absolute nightmare. Everyone is working. Yeah, it's, it's gone manic. It's gone mental in terms of yeah. the film TV it's a great time right to to enter the business I would say yes. because uh, yeah. there's there's literally you could you you could be I have a friend who who never did anything he was about 35 and he did a runner he was as a runner on City of Tiny Lights uh, which is a movie didn't a and then, he didn't do a runner <laughs> no, <laughs> <it's not laughs> a short career he proved himself uh, to be good there but you know he's my age and then um, he's just uh, gone straight into production coordinator on a big tv series and straight off um you know and just getting offered left right and center things so it's mm. it's really it's a boom time it's yeah. a boom time it's a boom yeah. time you, uh, leo um uh, lonsdale Lenora lonsdale can you remember why she got the role is there anything that you remember there about her getting to direct the pale horse God, leo is spectacular i mean she's one of my best friends as well i i i, I think i had the best uh, experience working with the director that i did with leo she was she was awesome what happened was it was probably about eight or nine weeks out from shooting things are starting to get to the we really must make a decision point and i was talking with mammoth and i think somebody else was actually in the frame who had come for a number of interviews and and was 
quite well known and I sort of thought they had it uh, mm-hmm. and I was fully prepared to go down that route and then I think there's a series called Endeavour that Mammoth make oh yeah and yeah, yeah. Great she series. Leo must have come in for an interview about one of the episodes or something like that one of the films for Endeavour and so somebody had a brainwave and said oh my gosh I've just met this uh, Leo Lonsdale who I know I mean it's a crazy idea but maybe we should think about her and I think it was about a week and a half later that she was in the director's chair. So it was a wow. super fast thing. I asked her to read it, the book, met up with her, I think the next day. Her mm-hmm. agent was like, uh, she, she worked through the night to make a pitch document. Mm. And uh, she's kind of known, I mean, she's done that a few times. She worked literally through the night, I think, put together a fabulous pitch document. And, and then she had to meet Mammoth, me, uh, BBC, Agatha Christie Limited, and um, have a call with, I think, Amazon as well. I'm not sure. But she it was, was very no tired pressure. at the end of that. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> pressure. And then it was like, boom, we're in prep straight away. So um, here we go. So Oh, sorry, Addo. This is the perfect time to prep our listeners because I have something massive to tell them. When you are dealing with 4 to 8K footage, you're dealing with massive files. And massive files call for massive Massive, spelt M-A-S-V, it's the file-sharing solution for the modern filmmaker and post-professional. We mentioned at the start of the show how you could receive 100 gigabytes for free towards your next transfer. And how to do that is you simply create an account at massive.io forward slash name, and you can quickly transfer terabytes of data over the cloud. And what's special about this is Massive's pay-as-you-go model means you only pay for what you need and there are virtually no limits to the size of file you can share. You can send uncompressed video to teams around the world, to your exec producers, to your editor, wherever they are, and you can speed up your production cycle. So if you sign up today at massive.io forward slash name, you can get a 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. Yeah, that's right. So go to massive.io forward slash name for a hundred gigabytes free. Now back to the other massive thing in your life. The show, the filmmakers podcast, what you're listening to now. Right. Sorry about that, Ado. Anyway, where were we? Ah, yes. What was in her pitch deck that was so exciting? What about her? I'm just, I'm just for people out there who are going, how, when I get in the room, what should I do? What was there anything specific you remember she did or other directors have done in the past that have impressed you? The first one was her short film. That's definitely the, the, the bulk of it. So she'd done a short film called Beast produced by her husband, Jack Sidey and starring Billy Piper. So I think we watched Beast and it had this sort of gothic, beauty to it it was really really well done composed but vibrant and it just had a sort of sensibility that was just kind of really exciting Mm -hmm. so i think beast was the the majority of it then there was in the room there was how uh leo talked about um the series and uh and about the pale horse and you know what she was thinking about from the scripts that sarah had written sarah had written some scripts which have all this unbelievable sort of uh kind of 
strength to them, brute strength and people who talk in, you know, just unbelievable dialogue and just, it's just so, it, it's sort of, you're there, but it could in, in other another director's hands been quite murky and, mm. and been kind of, you know, quite grimy. And I think that what Leo brought was a kind of a, a sort of elevated sort of classiness and, and sheen to it, which sort of merged the two worlds. So suddenly Mark Easterbrook and Rufus Sewell look absolutely phenomenal because Leo wanted him to look like that, you know, and the whole series has this kind of beauty to it, which is makes the horror even darker. So it was beauty and horror, those two kind of things. And I think Leo's pitch document spoke to that really well black and white photos McMullen you know all sorts of things references from the time um, a kind of 60s movies where they, they really had that sort of vibe to it and and then the other side was in the room just talking about how what she wanted to do with it um, other directors I, I sat in there with about six or seven other directors who, who were in the room and each one had something different that was intriguing and then I think at the end of the day it's just a decision like who, who do you feel you can trust with the material the most and, and that's yeah so I think Everyone gave it their best shot and everyone, and it just so happened that on this particular occasion, it was Leo, but it, 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 it could have been anybody really. It just depended on, on the people who are making this, what they feel at the, at, you know, is right for the, what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a contrast from what had come before, you know, so we had a very ABC murders was one before pale horse and it was quite kind of masculine, you know, it was quite not macho, but I would say kind of masculine John Malkovich as Brazilian director, I think. And then Leo's was kind of a different take on it. I think they wanted that they wanted to go in a slightly to have each one speak to a different decade and each one speak to a different sort of time and to have a kind of anthology feel to it. So, so yeah, I think, I think Leo brought something unique to that. Um, out of the director's talking, but she couldn't have known. It's not something that she could have prepared for or, no, you know, she it, could only give it her best shot and then hope it would work. So, mm, you know. It's kind of timing, isn't it? I think it's like you said there, it was just a time that they wanted something different. She was fresh in the room. It was so many things, factors that work yeah. in your favour. Kind of like with actors as well, you know, when they come into a room, it's yeah. sometimes luck, isn't it? That you would just, the person before was terrible or you'd all been arguing about a certain look or whatever. And then this person walks in, you all go, yes, you know, you all need to agree. And I think yeah. it's, it, it, you should never get our heads down. It's basically what I'm trying to get from this, is that you never know why you get a job or don't get a job yeah. with your acting, producing, directing, writing, anything. It's to do with just timing. Don't give up is basically what I'm saying. Keep working hard. Yeah, no, absolutely, Giles. I mean, you know, the number of famous actors and A-listers and so on whose, you know, opportunities came to them completely by chance, you know. Mm -hmm. um, they don't know why their careers have turned out the way they have when you yeah. when you read all these stories and biographies. And, you know, it is it is something about a bit of alchemy, a bit of opportunity, a bit of luck. And the only thing is if you work hard and prepare well each and every time, you just get a better chance of, yeah. of, of, of making it, you know. Yeah. And then, I mean, then you, then you get people like Mark Ruffler. I think it's Mark Ruffler that did like hundreds of jobs before he got noticed. Yeah. Why not? Learn. But maybe maybe it wasn't the fact that he maybe it was a mixture of him doing that that those you know huge amount of jobs, or maybe he just didn't have that moment that those other ones had, where he was in the right place with the right people at the right time. 
until yeah. that moment. And then that was the moment that set him off. Totally. And sometimes the more you work, the more luck comes your way because yeah. you'd, people talk very simply about, oh, yeah. what about that person? I saw them in so-and-so. Like if, if um, Leo hadn't made Beast, for instance, and she'd gone, well, I'm just going to make a feature that, you know, made a short that was yeah. vibrant that you all saw and went, that's great. Yeah. And it, you know, it's doing things like that to get noticed. And the, I think the more you work. I know. I think I think it was an education for me as well that, you know, you, you do think that a film is your calling card. But at the same time, she managed to get a major BBC Sunday night drama, you know, Agatha Christie mm. off the back of really a short. It was it was something that I'd learned because I'd always thought, oh, you have to have the several shorts and then like, you know, uh, a feature as well and so on. But actually, I sort of realized maybe you just you don't. It's a combination of of the confidence that you can do it, speaking about it well and, and having something that kind of shows in that direction. That's interesting because a lot of a sort of agents I'm talking to at the moment and people I talk to who are pitching for TV, when they've gone in, they've all kind of got the same answer back is, oh, go do an episode of Hollyoaks, go do an episode mm. of, I don't know, Doctors or whatever, and then we'll know you can do telly. But we're going, but we've made about five features. We've kind of, you know, this is a totally different medium yeah. to doing a Hollyoaks or a Doctors. It's a, just a totally different mindset. And, and we've had a lot of directors had that issue, but yet yeah, I love definitely. hearing from you to say, no, no, we pretty much took someone from a great short. Obviously, they pitched well and were brilliant in the room. But well, also, I think I think I mean, you know, if we're being absolutely frank here as well, I think a, a newer director is also uh, more likely to listen, and I think that that mm. that, that in TV yeah. world is quite important. In film world, it's probably the opposite. You know, the more director doesn't listen, the more lauded they are. But <laughs> <laughs> sadly, in, in TV, TV is a collaboration. That's why it's a business. Yeah. You know, yes. and not yes, not purely yes. an art form. So mm. yeah, I think I think there's partly several factors to it. But yeah, it just who would have known, you know, not, she couldn't have known, I couldn't have known. Um, but it was great that it ended up like that. And, and yeah, and the other directors, who knows what would have happened in, in their hands, you know? Mm. It's fascinating, isn't it, to think that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Um, would you, in America, you'd be classed as a showrunner 
right? Actually, no. I, I got asked this on this new job. Actually, they said they're looking at your the budget. Why? Why is um? Why are you going to be on during post? And because I'm working with a British production company with Tiger Aspect, uh, we all sort of went, yeah, that's how it works in the UK. The producer yeah. stays on from the yeah. beginning till yeah. the end, yeah. which is what I've always done in America. <laughs> you the on system in post. apparently, yeah, there's a post producer who comes on in post production, who's right. who's had nothing to do with the the shoot. Apparently, the mm. showrunner is usually that I, I think it's the right. It's basically the person who the buck stops creatively so they will decide everything to do with you know uh, and a director might be there uh, but the showrunner directs the actors which is really weird but that's something that's quite common on, on on our british system it's it's usually the producer is 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 fulfills the role the same as a feature film producer without all of the legal hassle because <laughs> <And everything. laughs> yeah, you've already got route to market as well. You yeah, know it's well, going on all, to yeah, exactly. Don't need to go around, you know, yeah. with a film in a suitcase, flogging it, <laughs> you know, and making posters up and then selling it behind a stand. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to yeah. do any of that. That's quite nice. So, have you been able to navigate around that for the new show? Is this the HBO show? Yes. Yeah, it is. It's just it's it's a whole nother dimension of everything. I mean, it's really weird. I, I'm enjoying it in as so much as it's just a constant learning. There's so much to learn about the way basically a studio makes something and it's a completely different set of processes and and all sorts of things that are different but one of them was yeah they don't really use producers in the same way they expect a producer i think because of the scale of these shows as well to be someone who's come up through the crew as a very experienced first ad or perhaps mm. line producer someone who can control the scale and, and numbers involved in these things. Um, whereas the producer here has to work with the director, the cast, you know, be involved creatively and practically, logistically in, in every which way. So it's it's different. But yeah, who knows? <laughs> it's fun as well. It's different. Yeah. <laughs> so so how have you? Yeah. How have you, how have you been approaching this so far? Then like coming on, you know, because you're you're in very early stages. You've got a lot of prep time. Um, yeah. How how has it all sort of started in, in this? It's well. It's 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 mental. I've probably been working on this for a couple of months. I de- delivered deceit. Promised myself I would take some time off. <laughs> Got sent an email that just time said, off. "Yeah, I'm laughing. I'm laughing because we know it doesn't come." What's time off? <laughs> I Does that happen between nervous breakdowns? <laughs> 2022. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like that. I was. I remember. You know, six six flat out months in post. Six flat out months in prep and shoot. And I just thought, you know, I deserve a bit of time off yeah definitely. you know sit back and read a book or something or <laughs> something. maybe have a day off you know <laughs> uh, but instead i got sent something that basically overlapped to the point where i delivered to see on a friday in june and started on this on the monday and <laughs> not, even a, bank holiday. <laughs> not <laughs> even a bank holiday i didn't even get that <laughs> but it's been quite gentle it's not full-on it is i would call it late stage development so it is a bit more involved. Like there aren't all the scripts are in, which there were um, on the last show because it, lockdown had allowed that time to happen. And on this one, the scripts are kind of still evolving. And yeah, HBO are different, um, amazing, but different. They they sort of, the first thing that the head of production, senior vice president of production at HBO, the first time I had five interviews for this. And the first one was, he just said, uh, so I'm overseeing 180 series right now. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's not true. They can't even remember the names of 180 series. That's not possible. I haven't even got 180 hands. I suspect that that's the entire output of HBO plus HBO Max. And he was kind of, you know, just sort of showing scale. But one of the things they are doing is obviously yeah. the Game of Thrones prequel. So it's that kind of amazing thing where you're on a call. They're talking about how the Prime Minister of Spain is going to come over for a meeting about how to change the law because HBO has been lobbying to change visa laws. Um, 
post-Brexit. Wow. Okay. And they're coming over for a meeting because they've got Game of Thrones plus this series is going to be shot in Spain. So <laughs> Love that. And then, oh, let me just bring on the Game of Thrones producer. Ding. And then suddenly we get, hello. <laughs> Game of Thrones. Hi, I'm the co-producer on Game of Thrones. Yeah, I'll talk you through the visa system. <laughs> what the hell? What the fuck? Okay. So, yeah, so it's, it's kind of intense like that. And then we had one of these things where there's a Zoom call and, and there's like 40 people and it literally 35 who just don't need to be on the call whatsoever. Yeah. Like, and Sitting you're just there. looking at just like a mosaic of people. You're like, what the oh, yeah. fuck do you all do? It's quite, it's quite funny like that because we're obviously used to doing things in a more scaled down indie British way, you know. Yes, so um, very much so. It's it's uh, it's different, but also that once they support you, they go flat out. So we said we needed to. I've never been to Ibiza, never been to Mallorca, and uh, just only laughs. You were like, I just want to go raving. I've, yeah, I, want, yeah. I promised myself a holiday. <laughs> Send me to Ibiza. <laughs> so like, yeah, so the job comes in and it's like set in Ibiza over two weeks. Yeah. In like a villa in Ibiza. That's the whole series. And I was like, well, I really should get out there to, 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 because we're talking about when we're going to shoot. Can, can we <laughs> yeah, shoot over Yeah, to, the winter? What's it like? Can you get in the sea in winter? Like, I have no idea. So we organized, well, we said we'd like to go on a recce. Um, myself and the line producer and then literally two weeks later we were on a two-week recce in Ibiza Mallorca uh, with three Spanish guys who are like scout driver and production manager with a full itinerary taking us around three different places so we went Ibiza Formentera wow. Mallorca and Costa Blanca and I was I was we're looking at luxury villas and amazing beaches and mm-hmm. like special oh. mountains and I was like going, this is mad this is like the the yeah. craziest job ever you know um, yeah I love that though like dream. you say <laughs> the dream the support and everything they just went well let's do this and if you go back to your sort of your first feature films if you like with The Last Passenger and then City of Tiny Lights could you have ever dreamed that you know this the covid budget on this show would pay for both of those movies combined <laughs> wow that's, that's amazing and also painful <laughs> it's horrible it's horrendous yes how did you go from because you were you know making feature films and we spoke to you when i mean city of tiny lights had sort of come out and you'd have made it maybe a year or so ago when you came to the yeah. film event for us and you you very kindly were guests there but then you you were already moving into tv at that point uh, and we didn't touch on it too much because we were very much on the filmic side at the time. How was the leap and how was it kind of an easy process? Was it a kind of, OK, well, I've produced these films. Let me go and talk to TV companies. Just because it's interesting how you do the change. Yeah, I mean, if if you literally imagine staring at a blank wall, that's what I thought moving into TV was like, like, you know, I don't know anybody in TV. I don't know how they make TV. All I know is that there are some really, I I got to the point where I was watching almost as much TV as I was films. And then I thought um, it was so hard to to make a one particular film that I was trying to make. And I sort of got a little bit discouraged by how hard it was at mm. that point in time. And then I just thought, you know, I was getting on a bit. I've, I've also, you know, a father became a father. And, and I just thought at that point, like, there must be, because I had a film that I put spent two years heart and soul putting together had a slate that was extraordinary, you know, wonderful slate of of things that were exciting and bubbling away with, you know, BFI and Film 4 and everybody. And it all felt like it was was just one step away from happening, but that step Mm -hmm. was ever elusive. So I remember thinking at the time, like, 
I, I met the lawyer who was my lawyer and last passenger and um, she was working at a TV company. She was the one who put the idea in my head and said, you should be doing this. You're better than like most of these TV producers. I promise you, you can, you can do this. You can do this. And I was like, nah, I don't know how. Who am I gonna, <laughs> I only know you. <laughs> How's it going to work? So it was from that point and that was probably three years ago, which shows you it's not very long actually. Mm. So it was about mid 2018 that the movie fell apart i got very depressed i mean mm -hmm. like really yeah. down I, I just questioned everything we were flat broke my kid was you know now what maybe four i think and it just felt like it was just it's always the same sort of thing you know it's just always promise and never deliver and then i remember the second half of that year so i must have met my lawyer in the summer of that um in that summer while i was super depressed and and just sort of struggling really as a person and everything and i remember just applying for jobs which i never done in my life i've never applied for any jobs but i was applying for jobs now like as development people at the bfi and this and that and a book mm -hmm. agent and stuff and then it was only towards the end of the year that um i bumped into a couple of people who were kind of pivotal one was farah who just made abc murders and done the same transition from film to tv and the other was matt dench who's an agent i've known for a long time yeah dench arnold right yeah matt yeah. dench and he was terrific and it, it sort of went to this thing where look i've always got as a film person, as a film producer, you've always talking to people about your slate, what you've got coming up, what you're developing, being receptive and open to new ideas and new mm -hmm. thoughts until you can't handle too many, you know? And on a TV producer, it is functional. It's a job. You go in and you are there very stimulating, but still it is, it is part of a machine, you know? And so just learning that took... Mm. Um, took about four months of just asking like what's the difference what's the difference between film and tv there's a vast difference in some ways and other ways on the production side once you're on set it feels very very much the same and then everything afterwards mm -hmm. it just feels like there are more people to take care of the things that you had to take care of yourself yeah. all that time but i'm really glad uh that i came up through the indie film route i'm really glad that i was made by the bfi to do everything on last passenger including you know i remember we talked about post-production supervisor and and we were asking for like two and a half grand so we could hire somebody and and chris collins at the bfi um sort of late chris collins but he, he said to me um no i think it's a lesson for you and you should do it yourself and i was like but i've just killed myself making the film and yeah. the i don't want to do all this shit paperwork and he was like you know it's you have to do it so yeah learn your trade it was it was one of those where it really helps to learn your trade and i think i think i wish i'd done a 70 grand movie you know when i was much younger i wish i'd just got my friends together and made movies you know just to keep learning and learning and mm. learning you know i think jumping in on a sort of just over a million pound feature film with all these stakeholders was a little bit a little bit not the right way to do it but yeah. then in, into tv now it's just about the fact that the access you get you know your access to writers and access to cast and access to directors are just like mm. and also it's very fast you know i've only done two and then i got asked to do one by hbo and it just seemed like it's incredible it's like three years ago if you'd said you'd be you'd be working on an hbo series within a couple of years i've just no way come on you know that's insane i think it's such a it's such a valuable lesson like even even though now you have got those budgets um you know the, you know, the huge budgets you're not going to be someone that wastes money um and, and i think that goes for people that have worked you know on even lower budgets like when you build yeah. the sets yourself and you 
gone out and bought the costumes and you know it's all that sickening. kind of stuff. You know, you know all you needed was another couple of hundred grand to, yeah. to round out a finance plan or something like yeah. that. And you you see these you see these ridiculous numbers in a budget. The budget now, mm. you know, it's like it's it's a hundred and twenty something pages long, the budget, mm. you know. It's just it's just insane. And the numbers are just crazy, you know, crazy. And you just think, well, if you're used to it, fair enough, you know. But um I, I just think there's a lot of wastage and I think that it probably if you hived off some of that and gave it to a younger filmmaker, you might bring through more films. Yeah, more we'll, talent, we'll take some. You know? so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I you know it doesn't work like that, obviously. But I mean, I think it's incredibly valuable, though, to, to hear you. I mean, I think it's people underestimate when they're making films and they're sort of plugging away at TV and they are having hard times that, you know, whether you're a first time filmmaker trying to make your first feature or you're, you know, at your level, there is that moment when you think about giving up and you think about, you know, am I, am I doing the right thing? The whole time. Imposter syndrome is a massive exactly, one yeah. in this new one, I would say. Like, I, I don't necessarily suffer from it myself, but I, there are occasions when you kind of go, whoa, what am I doing here? <laughs> like, and there are other times, mostly it's, it's about the struggle. I mean, you know, since I was 20, I've been in the film business and, and I've grown up around it. So I really have seen everybody. So I've seen my mum super depressed and lost her house. I've seen, you know, I felt myself absolutely like it just seems to be roadblock after roadblock after roadblock after, you know, get your hopes up and have them dash, get your hopes up and have them dash. It's like a cycle of, of sort of self-flagellation and, and sort of, you know, masochism. And you go, why, why are we doing this? You know, I, I think it's really familiar. And I think that everyone should take heart from the fact that that is literally the same journey for every single person, you know, and even those who've had staggering success, the problem with staggering success is that maintaining staggering success because then nothing you do afterwards is going to match up to that. So, you know, there is a sadness and a, a sort of a, a, a something to that that is also kind of really difficult and part of a journey. I just think the whole thing is, is, is hard, mm -hmm. but there are so many great things that can happen and do happen along the way but also you've got mm -hmm. to make good decisions as well. Like the idea of, you know, film at the minute is I, I'd like to be a producer who can make both films and TV. Right now, I'm a little bit sad because I don't think the indie film scene is as healthy or as flourishing as it could be. And I think the TV scene is a little bit oversaturated. So, you know, there will never be a kind of natural order to it or a balance to it. But I just think that, yeah, it's uh, the, the, the best thing I did was not to pigeonhole myself into just film and just stick with that, like, bloody-mindedly, you know, unless it was absolutely what I wanted to do, but it wasn't. You know, I wanted to be able to make things on a regular basis and work with more writers and directors and cast and so on, you know, and, and other production companies and other broadcasters. So I'm really pleased I can do that. And the challenge going forward will be how to 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 be able to do both, to go back to film and then try and make, you know, some of the films that have been I've just haven't had time. To, to keep pushing forward because films do not push themselves forward nope, you know unless someone is pushing them that train has stopped mate and yeah. and it's it's you it's as you guys and 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 you know people like myself who have to absolutely grind those films keep making them trying to happen and and you know just eventually just try and and know also when to to give up on one particular film or to put it aside for a while you know and those are things that just come with experience i think and how much you can handle <laughs> as well yeah. like, how much can you take that's always it isn't it it's like you know whether however horrendous the pressure is like if, if your passion to sort of make films and and you know you're good to work with and people like working with you like you will keep going no matter how difficult it is and, and that sort of separates people that give up and those that don't is you know making stories is kind of your life i, I think that goes yeah. for all of us 
I mean, I, I wouldn't, I just think I've known some people believe the industry as well, you know, um, really great producers, really great actors, really great directors and so on. So, you know, it can, I just think it's, it's, you, if, if, if it's what, it, if it's everything to you and you keep trying and keep trying, I, I do believe that, you know, things do pay off. I do believe, I, I wouldn't have said that three years ago, three years ago, I was in the midst of just going, I'm going to become an Uber driver. I'm going wow. to retrain as a teacher. Mm. I'm literally done with this. You know, it's, it's, it's been my family's life for 70 years but I'm just done with it. I just can't take this any longer. That's too painful. Yeah, it, it can turn around. It can turn around really quickly as well. That's the other thing. It's not like it has to be a long slog. It doesn't necessarily. It's like that picture with the, the, the two people that have got the little pickaxes and they're, they're like right next to the, the, the diamond wall and one of them gives up and the other one doesn't. It's like, you never know how close you are. <laughs> it's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yeah, and yeah. that's why, like, say, sometimes when you are, the stuff coming in, just take it with both hands and just deal with it. That was a thinking. It was just like, you know, where do you want to go next? It was like, okay, well, set a goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's some, some, I sort of keep reading that some of these successful people in all walks of life, um, to, to, you know, try and visualize, you know, visualize mm-hmm. the, the, the thing and keep that in your mind. I think, I think there is a slight truth to that in the only sense that after BBC One and Channel Four, I remember thinking the only thing that I would, I would possibly give up like a break for is not to go straight back onto the wagon and do another BBC One or another, you know, I wouldn't touch ITV. Sorry, ITV, but I just wouldn't touch ITV. But it was either uh, Netflix uh, or an Apple or an Amazon yeah, or an yeah. HBO. That was it. Because yeah. there's another level of budget where, you yeah, know, we had to be yeah. very creative on deceit. You know, we didn't have yeah. the biggest budget for what we're trying to do. But now we've got a budget probably five times as big as that, as big as that for something that we could make for a 30th of it, to be honest mm. with you, <laughs> if we had to. But that's how it works, isn't it? That's why when you play in the big leagues, then that becomes, and, and you, it helps you become all right, you don't want to get stuck down in the ways, but at no, the same time, it's exciting. You're going, I mean, yeah, you know exciting, what? Like, right? It's going to be painful. Someone, a friend of mine, when well, I was umming and ahhing about this, said, uh, you know, what, what are you it's worrying about? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, well, it's, you know, I was like, oh God, these Americans are going to be calling all times of day and night and this and that, and I need my eight hours of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be like on a waiting for a call to happen at one in the morning. And he was like, mm-hmm. shut up, girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do it once, and if you hate it, don't do it again. Exactly. Like, <laughs> if you'd been an Uber driver, you'd have been getting called. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was, it was just don't bitch and moan and just, you know, it's like, this is the time if you, if you can, if you're young enough and strong enough to do it and you get offered amazing things, do it because you know what, like the composers just, just talking about like what you can do with a budget like this is the dream thing. I've never been able to afford the kind of composers that I want to, to work with, you know, mm. that are like staggeringly amazing. Yes. Yes. And, and I get a list through of, of composers and it's just, it blows your mind, you know, it's just like these are the people that we could reach would you like to make a short list out like jesus christ serious you know so it's that sense of being or or no cast is unattainable or unapproachable let's say no director is off off the limit you know so it's, it's suddenly just going 
Wow. Okay, so the entire compromise thing that that happens all the time、mm-hmm. in every facet of filmmaking it kind of goes out the window because they give you the resources to, to throw money at it. <laughs> yeah, to throw money at it, but also with the expectations that you better deliver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, and also, I mean, you know, something like HBO that there is a there's a signature of kind of like quality. So when when those kind of people receive. You know, an offer or, or a request, they know that they're probably going to be in with a good show. I think so. I mean, they, they, you know, I, I think they're probably. I never really paid one attention to the Emmys before, but like more and more, I'm just starting <laughs> to look at these kind of awards. But like, just in you know, case, it was, it was a well. It was always the Biffers and the Baftas and you know, yes, film awards. Totally, yeah. And Golden Globes didn't really care, and Emmys is just like silly because there's you know, and Netflix. I think HBO got like a hundred and thirty-five nominations this year or something like that. I was like. And, and Netflix got a hundred times. Like, how many categories can you possibly yeah, exactly. have? <laughs> all of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah,、uh, all so, of them. <laughs> so clearly, there's you know, there's there's a sheen of quality. They they are not of the scale of say. Apple, who、mm-hmm. are making some of the biggest series I think ever being made at the moment.、Mm-hmm. That Lord of the Rings is the money per episode. Yeah, yeah, and Foundation. Yeah, I think I think there's like Apple are doing Citadel and Foundation, which I just sound like the budgets are just off、yeah. the scale. Amazon are doing the Lord of the Rings thing, which is、yeah. again crazy. <laughs> HBO are doing the Game of Thrones prequel, which is its own thing as well. So I mean, yeah, it's it's that sort of time. Yeah, and we thought the Crown was really expensive. Yeah, then you look at these ones, you're <laughs>、yeah. like, hello. Yeah, it's different world, but it's amazing. It's exciting. It's really exciting, and it's exciting your career, and it's brilliant that、yeah. you know. It, I, I, was it two years ago the Make Your Film event? I can't yeah, remember, yeah. but it's so wonderful to now see you've done this, and fair play to you. You know, proper proud of you, both me and Dom. The、Thank、fact you, that you've、man. just gone and now big HBO show. Well done. You know, it's exciting. Yeah, but you know, it's just it's the same. I feel exactly the same as I did when I did that Make Your Film, which is the same I felt like years before that. You know, I think I think what's important in this is not to let it take over your life and and keep your friends. Friends, and、um, and just sort of also just you know step out of yourself as well from time to time, and you know what I mean. Like it's 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 what we do is great, but it's it's also very painful, and you can get kind of get sucked into all of that.、Yeah. So, but yeah, it's、uh, once 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 we're all celebrating together, once we made something, it's really nice. And I have to say, I'm so. Uh, happy whenever any of my friends make anything, or or you know about to release something or something, because you just know the hard work and the effort and the sheer doggedness that's gone into to doing that and trying to do it well. So you know, good luck to everybody who's trying to trying to make anything. I think anything that is made is an achievement, literally. And after that, it's about how good the stories are. You know, how、mm-hmm. good a storyteller you can be. But again, it's it's not just down to one person. Usually, you know, it's down to lots and lots of different factors. So you know, you can only do your best. I think that is amazing. What a wonderful, wonderful way to end this amazing episode. Thank you. This has been brilliant.、Oh, it was loads of fun. No, thanks so much, guys. I, I really, I really appreciate it. No problem. Deceit is out now on Channel Four. Go watch it.、Uh, yeah, it's. I can't wait for the next episodes. I'm super excited already. Oh, they all come out on the same night. So what、oh, they do now、okay. is box setting everything. So air ep one, release everything that night for the binges, and then each week it will come two, three, and four. And I have to say, the only thing is ep three. Is、uh, my favorite. I think Ep Three is the best thing I've ever done. I think that is the most rounded、um, hour of of TV, and I think it's it's a really really good good episode. So、um, yeah, I hope people enjoy it. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy it too. We will. We definitely we def- will. Yeah, definitely will. Yeah,、uh, Ado, thank you so much.、Yes. This has been brilliant.、Uh, can people find you on the socials? Can you give out your?、Uh... I'm on Instagram.、Um, yeah, I'm I'm just turning into a granddad, so I don't have Twitter. Instagram. Also, 
Yeah, Instagram dad. Yeah, I got told off because I posted my first Instagram story the other day, and I posted it three times, like granddad. <laughs> I got laughed at by my editor, but um, <laughs> but yeah, no, um, Instagram. I'm on the, uh, that and Facebook. Yeah. So cool. um, what is it? What's the handle? What have you got on there? Oh, good. Granddad's gonna check his. Um, yeah, Instagram granddad handle. checks while we do Dom's. Dom, where can people find you? Director Dom Lenoir on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I'm at Charles Alderson on the same. Mine's Ado Yoshizaki Kasuto or Ado dot Yoshizaki Kasuto on Instagram. That's what it sounds. Perfect. Follow the granddad on there <laughs> <laughs> for granddad tips. <laughs> oh, thanks so much, guys. I had a blast. Um, yeah, it was amazing. Thank you. Amazing. Remember, you can go out there and make your indie film or your TV show, whatever it is, you can do it. And remember, if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, as Ado has done, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. Thank you both. It's been amazing. We will see you all next Tuesday. Take care. Go make something happen this week. Make it happen. See you next week. Bye.